Do you know a learner who is perfectly competent in some areas, maybe even in many or most areas? And by competent, I mean they do well in those areas and they're legitimately curious in those areas and they're what we casually call smart in those areas. But then there's this one area, this untouchable zone, which is off limits something they are absolutely certain they cannot do, something they are afraid of, no matter how many times they've tried to do it and learn it and jump off that cliff, they always come back sort of shattered and fractured and unable to do it. And then they say, oh, that's my blind spot or, oh, that's the thing I can't do it. Maybe this person is you. Maybe this learner is your child. Maybe this learner is a student in another area of your life. Sometimes in some areas, this person is me. Today's podcast explores this fear of learning, and I am so glad you've joined me today. So here we are in the sixth podcast for The Process Effect. Every Friday, we share a great book, one of those touchstone, endlessly useful text to which we return and return and return. A few weeks ago, we shared Ronald Gross's book, Peak Learning, a great, useful book. And this week, a chance encounter with a homeschooling mom became an intense conversation about what happens and what to do when a learner fears learning. And we know what to do when we want to change something, right? We try to discover the causes of the situation we want to change. We try to discover the causes of the problem that we want to solve. Gross lists six fears, six learning fears. And today, we'll work through each one of them so that we can understand the role of fear in our learning lives and how fear might be constraining the learning life of you or someone you love. So let's get started. The obvious first fear is simply confusion. Sometimes we've encountered subject matter before somewhere in the past, and we've, for whatever reason, not seen that subject clearly and not found an entry point for it. And let's be honest, sometimes the right subject at the right time for the right learner, that magical equation isn't there. Gross articulates this as his first fear. And fear number one, according to Gross, is I do not understand what I am learning. I think almost everyone has experienced this before. We're at that moment. We're at that threshold. The stuff we need to know is just right there. We can almost touch it. But something keeps us from it. I've seen this so many times in my practice as a teacher and as a learning coach and as a tutor. Sometimes even when you have done well in a subject before, the new or next level of that subject can throw you for a loop. It can be suddenly mystifying. And so what do you do when that happens? What do you do when you want to learn it? It's right there, but you do not understand what you are learning. We tend to focus so much on learning styles that we don't think that much about presentation or teaching or instructional styles. Sometimes When a learner wants to learn, but they're afraid of learning, they're afraid of not understanding. And when you see that you or a learner that you're working with just simply doesn't understand, the material confuses them, try to get to the point of the confusion. And remember from our earlier podcast, always be encouraging. Always catch them having done something right. Even the fact that someone understands that they don't understand. (laughs) 
that's getting somewhere. That's an invitation to a conversation. Say, all right, you know, this has happened to me too. So what can we do right now? Where is it? Which moment does it not make sense? Now, of course, the learner might come back and say, none of it makes sense. I just don't even want to talk about it. Do not talk to me about this thing. The whole thing is confusing. Ugh. Read that as just general frustration, right? But how do we break through that frustration to see where that point of not understanding is so that we can see where the fear is leaking in and so that maybe we can find a way to change that lack of understanding into understanding? What is it that doesn't make sense? Could be that when they're trying to factor polynomials, there's this one stage, there's this one step that they're missing. Or it could be that they need to actually manipulate something in order to understand it. That maybe up to this point, mathematics has been a very literal thing for them. You know, something that they could figure out using rods or a geoboard or whatever. And once things become abstract for the first time, we have to understand that's a little tricky for most people. How can we make that more clear? How can we make that transition to the next step? Just knowing that that is a possibility, knowing that that is a reason for fear, knowing that that's a reason for rejection, is useful because sometimes when a student will say, oh, I just, I don't even want to talk about that. I hate math or I don't like writing. I don't like history. Why do we have to even do geography? Whatever the resistance is, instead of responding to that in a controlling way, try to respond in an embrace, right? Try to respond with a set of questions. Try to respond by saying, wow, was it kind of scary to do that lesson today? Was there a certain point that you didn't understand? And that could be one of the first questions to try to reframe and try to get to turning the light back on in that room. The second reason that people fear learning, according to Gross, is that some learners think that they are just not someone who can learn that subject. You know, I'm not a person who can learn this subject. Could be that, you know, for every learner, there is something that is more difficult than all of the other things that they find themselves more easily learning, more readily learning. Before we try too hard to flip the switch back on in that room, maybe we can see whether this learner has learned anything like this before. Is this a completely new subject? Is this a completely new area of study? Is this just a continuation of something that the learner has always had difficulty in? If this is something that we've tried again and again, and it's just every time it's difficult, every time it's like pulling teeth, try to see what the issue might be and realize that this self-talk, this I am not a person who can learn this subject, like I'm just not a math person, I'm just not a writer, I just have never can remember the things I need to remember in history. We've all said things like that, we've all heard people say things like that, we've heard our learners say things like that. So we don't want to come right in and say, no, 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 you're good at math. You don't want to give them a false reassurance. But it's always interesting as the coach and the guide for the person's learning to see where those points of resistance are and to hear that negative self-talk. Sometimes just kind of keep it. Hold that negative self-talk. Move on to a different subject. Let them learn something else that they're comfortable with today. And then try to find better ways, try to find different ways that might be lower stakes to reintroduce not the whole subject, not the whole lesson you were hoping for, but maybe a little tiny micro lesson 
portion of it reframed and see if that might work better. So fear number three. I don't know how to learn this effectively. Sometimes learners can actually learn material and they can access and comprehend and apprehend information, but it really takes a long time. If you've ever had to read a chapter like five times just to finally get it and then be able to think, okay, now I think I understand what they're saying. The learner in that situation is learning but they're not learning really effectively. And so they're learning in a way that sets them up for frustration. And if they're frustrated, they might sort of start globalizing to say, well, anything that requires a lot of reading is going to be hard for me. Or I don't have enough time to read it five times, therefore I don't have time for this at all today. So how can we try to help them learn different subjects in more effective ways. We already have some tips on that at the website and in past podcasts, and we have plans for future podcasts to help with this as well, especially with the Reluctant Reader podcast, which was one of our first ones. Make sure that when you're talking to the reader, again, that we don't give them false encouragement that will help them think that it's okay not to like the subject. Or, you know, sometimes you just have to read it five times, honey. <laughs> Let's just, you know, you might even with an older learner, with a middle school age to high school age, teenaged homeschooler, or an adult learner, maybe this is you or the learner in question here. One of the things that you can do is try to reframe it for yourself and say, what is it that makes me think that I'm not learning this effectively? Is it because I have to read it five times? Is it because I don't get it on the first grab? If we can find a more effective way to read, if we can find a tutor who can explain it in that useful way that gives us sort of the key to the kingdom, if we can find a way to simply use a different approach. I was speaking with the homeschool mom yesterday who was talking to me about how one of her learners is having difficulty with one math concept. And so she had heard all these great things about this one online video program, and she thought, okay, this is like the third thing that I've tried, and I will try to use this with my student and see if this will help them. They watch the video, and they try to get into it, and that just further frustrates the student. And so then the mother is thinking, Now I don't know what else to do. I don't know what my next thing will be. I've tried all the popular things. This is not my subject area. What do I do next? And first, you have to applaud the mother for seeking out alternate approaches to this subject area and for modeling to the child, for modeling to the learner, that the first thing you do when you don't understand is you try to find another slash better way. You try to find another way to learn whatever it is that you need to learn. But one thing that we need to do that Gross mentions again and again is when we think about peak learning or optimal learning, we think that all of that comes easily. And really, these first three fears that some learners have, or I would say that all learners have, are really opportunities to start seeing what he calls the trail signs. We need to look along the trail to see, okay, how did I get here to this moment at which I feel frustrated, at this moment at which I feel that I cannot do what I need to do, this moment at which I feel that I don't understand and I don't know how to learn this and maybe this is the subject that I can't learn. Let's look back at where you've come on the trail, 
what you've already passed through to get here and try to see where did things kind of get a little off course. Where was the first time that you felt a little frustration and you didn't pay attention to it because maybe with this subject you always sort of feel that way. But today in this session it sort of escalated and now you know I'm just at a stopping point I can't go forward. I don't understand how I got here, how I got this far, and so I can't proceed any further. Gross says instead of being frustrated by that, instead see it as an opportunity to look around and say, okay, how did I get here? Where exactly am I? And how can I stop and reconsider my situation and maybe take some notes about which signs I'm seeing on the, on the learning trails so far, even if I leave it off and don't return to it until next week or two weeks from now or two days from now. Right now, while I'm feeling frustrated and I know exactly how I got here, I know which lessons I went through, I know which pages I just read, I know which video I just watched, whatever it might be, now is the perfect time while all of your senses are wrapped around this experience to make some notes and basically write a little report to yourself to say, I got lost on the trail at this point. Here are my coordinates and hear the signs that led me here so that next time I will know how to back up and go this way on the trail again, if that makes sense. I think that that's one of those, that idea of trail signs is a really, really useful part of his description of fear number three. Let me back up and read a little bit from that section just to make it more clear. He says on page 44, There is little that can more effectively kill enjoyment than a challenge that comes with little direction with no place to start. It is as if you set out to meet some friends on a hike. They've told you where they will be camping and where to park your car. You get out and look at the forest in dismay. Which trail should you take? What landmarks should you look for? But once you know how... It's easy and fun. You look for the white triangle painted on trees until you get to the stream. You follow the current until you reach a tree with a yellow circle and follow that marked trail to the campsite. He explains that the techniques in the book will help learners learn to notice the trail signs that will help them learn what they need and want to learn. But in my reading, I see also that they'll tell you if you're going on the wrong track. They'll also tell you which signs did I take when I should have been following the white triangles? Which wrong trail did I take? And let's make a note of it so that next time I can join my, quote, friends or I can meet that goal of learning what I wanted to learn. So now we get to fear number four. This fear is that I won't remember what I am learning. And this is really... (laughs) This is the fear that is really the foundation of so much that the process effect is about or tries to respond to. When we're thinking about the kind of learning, the kind of mastery that is required of us in a school situation, reading things that we would never normally read, and we're reading those things or we're engaging activity or we're doing all of these things in order to learn something so that we retain it, so that We can be assessed on it so that someone can give us a special learning crown and say, hey, you know that thing. Congratulations. (laughs) As Gross explains, in real life, we have the choice to retain as much or as little as we like based on what we need, what we find relevant, and what we enjoy using. There are required subjects, even in homeschool, that we 
have to make sure that according to our state that we're in or the country that we're in, that we have to make sure that our learners understand and that they retain and that they have some relative fluency with. There is this fear that I think most learners have that, well, I might get it like today, but how do I know I will remember it? One of the ways that we can make sure that learners remember things is to have them write about that thing, have them engage that idea or that set of competencies in a range of ways. If we ask someone to read a text and answer questions on it. As soon as they've read that text, they might be able to answer those questions. But how can we make sure that they really have learned that and they really do retain that information? One thing that we can do is make sure that the curriculum is designed in such a way that this information intersects with other information later. Find a way to make each subject interlace with other subjects. That's one way that we can help with retention. Another thing you can do is have students or have learners do something imaginative with that information. And so instead of just reading something, doing a worksheet, and moving on, can have them do something imaginative so they have to reinvent that information for a different purpose. The same holds true with writing, so that if we have someone read something and they answer questions and we think, okay, they understand that, if they then write about it, find a new use for every piece of information that the test was not some worksheet or whatever but the test was always how do you know if something is relevant only if you can find a connection between it and something else you already know between it and something else you have learned and so if you're always trying to find those connections and then analyze those connections for a fit you're always doing some kind of critical thinking you're always doing some kind of imaginative thinking and you'll always remember things so we just have two more fears. Fear number five is a learner's fear that they are ashamed that they don't know something. Many of us learned this kind of learning-based shame in a conventional classroom situation. Whenever we try to learn something, if we know that the teacher will ask us if we know it and shame us if we don't know it, then we start to attach shame to learning even when we're successful learners. And that's something that we don't really talk about, right? And some of us, because we don't talk about it, we continue to associate it with the learning situation. And so some of us will even bring that into our practice with learners with whom we work. And that's so sad. So how can we avoid that? The first thing is maybe every time we encounter new information, if we are the learner, maybe every time we help someone else encounter new information, if we're working with the learners, Start by admitting that we don't know it yet. I want to learn this. I need to learn this, but I don't know anything about it yet. So everything that I'm doing with this information is new. I will try to find connections between this new information and things that I already know so that maybe it will stick and maybe I can make better sense of it. I think in this information-saturated world that we live in now, so much acquisition of information, because we're in the swirl of information all the time, is now so attached to ego because all the information in the world, so they say, is at our fingertips. We feel this pressure to know everything, and if we don't know it, we should be able to instantly Google it, and then Googling it helps us pretend that we know it, or we can temporarily, artificially, at a surface level, 
know it. We have to step back from that and think, what does knowing really mean? What is the process for knowing something? The first step in the process of knowing something is to say, here is a thing I don't know yet. Here's the reason I I need to acquire this knowledge or this set of skills. When I engage this material, I'm engaging it so that I can do X or Y or ABC. That's the first step is to admit that we don't know it. Admit that there might or might not be a gap. Maybe I don't really need to know it, but I'm curious. I want to know. But right now, I don't know it. And that helps us remove shame, any potential shame, from this situation. And if anyone in your life or your learner's life comes in and says, what, they don't know so-and-so yet? Make sure that you try to separate that idea, that presumption that has that shame attached to it Make sure that you remove that as much as you can from your life and your learner's life. That expectation that comes from somewhere else is not attached to you, not attached to your learner, not attached to your learner's style or method or mode or process or rationale or set of priorities. And so, yeah, I love number five, this fifth fear. I feel ashamed that I don't know something because that shame Gross says comes from resentment about being controlled and evaluated and put on the spot. How many times are students put on the spot and when they can't perform in whatever way that the person who puts them on the spot might expect or imagine, they're shamed for that performance. So we need to make sure when we are the learners that we don't, or that we recognize, we need to make sure that when we are the learners, that we recognize our own histories with learning and that we might have some of that lingering resentment about being controlled. We might have some of that lingering shame. What role does that lingering resentment or lingering shame play in the learning situations that we try to build for our learners now? We need to make sure that when we are creating a learning situation for our learners, that we create a shame-free, blame-free, resentment-free, control-free zone for them so that they are free to absorb the material that's provided to them. They're free to use the methods, use the processes available to them so that they can learn in their way and not have to fear not knowing something, not have to fear being put on the spot, not having to fear being shamed for something that they're in the process of knowing but they don't know yet. I love that Gross brings this up. It is so so important. I see the aftermath of this so many times, even when I'm dealing with professional people who will still bring those behaviors and resentments into the professional space because they never had anyone give them the right kind of chance when they were learners the first time. Maybe you know adults who do this. They bring resentment into almost every learning space, almost every information exchange. They will put people on the spot so that they can call them out. And you have to think what kind of hurt, what kind of lingering hidden resentment makes someone do that. Right? What we're trying to do with our learners now is bring up a whole 
generation of people who do not have that in their learning DNA. And you can do this. You can, and it's not sheltering them. It's not protecting them. It's just rejecting an old idea about shame as attached to almost everything. But I mean, shame is in in the world of learning. Let's try to separate those things. Shame might have its place, but it's not in the learning situation. And now finally, the sixth fear, and listen to me, turn the page. The sixth fear, especially when we're dealing with complicated subjects and huge subjects and multi-year subjects and lifelong subjects, that fear is there's just too much to learn. There's just too much. There's so much. What? How can I possibly learn all of these things? Or this book is like a thousand pages long and there's like dense information on every page. How can I possibly, how can I possibly, possibly learn this? Now, the first response to that, right, is that so many important things in life are really densely informational and are really deep and really require sort of sustained attention. And that's not a bad thing. And you can learn to give a subject, you can learn to give a topic that kind of sustained attention. Also, if you're following some of the earlier processes And you're saying, for every new thing I learn, I will try to make connections. That helps us comprehend and learn something, and it helps us make the learning stick. All that is true. But it also helps us to comprehend huge bodies of information, because there's almost no huge body of information that's self-contained, that's a silo of one discipline's information. Instead, almost every huge dense, complex body of information has little legs and arms and antennae that connect to a little web of information that connects to um, a few or many or several other disciplines and other bodies of information. If the process or the habit of mind that we're putting into play is already, how do you know this? Let's make connections. That's one way to know something. Then when we see something that seems to be too much to learn. We can say, okay, well, we'll take it in small bites. We'll take it in chunks. And every time we see a chunk, let's relate it to something else so that we can always see the big picture as we're connecting the dots. In many ways, it's like putting together one of those huge, huge jigsaw puzzles with little tiny pieces. The whole jigsaw puzzle is the sky. (laughs) So everything is blue and white. And you think you can't use the regular tricks with the puzzles, such as putting all the reds over here and all the burnt siennas over here and all the black over there and all of the gray over there and all the purple in a pile. It's all variations of blue and white. It can sort of rock the brain a little bit. But when we deal with huge, complex bodies of information, it can be kind of like that. How do you approach that kind of information. When you have a teenaged homeschooler, a teenaged learner, an adult learner, the topics that they need to explore and address are no longer simple. You're no longer learning the alphabet. You're no longer learning to count, learning what the animals are or whatever it is. You're no longer memorizing simple poems and doing those sorts of things. Everything you encounter now is huge. Every new body of information contains multitudes. This fear is very real. It's rooted in reality, but you can approach that huge, complex body of information one step at a time. You can tell the elephant story, even to yourself. What's the best way to eat an elephant, right? One bite at a time. So when you think about anything that seems to be 
too much, you can always break it down and make it manageable. And then each manageable chunk can be connected to other things that you know so that as you're learning each tiny manageable chunk, you're making sense of it within the knowledge universe that already is part of your experience and your mind and your path as a learner. As Gross says, learning is an ongoing process in which you first identify the things that intrigue you, then find out about them to whatever degree you want. Next, you process that knowledge and build on it, fitting it in wherever it is useful for your purposes. You then make a decision about what is truly useful and worth keeping while noting where you can find out the rest when and if you need it. Finally, you start the same cycle over again. And I think that's a great way to bring this sixth fear to a close. The way that he explains the work of large bodies of information. We try to apprehend them. We try to learn them. We do the best we can. We chunk them up into tiny bits. We relate them to everything else we know. But really, when it comes down to it, we take what's relevant to us. Relevance is always key, right? We take what's relevant to us and we leave the rest. So let's recap and think about these fears about learning, these fears that learners have about learning. Think about what we can do with them. How can we do the work that we need to do as learners, encouragers of learners? What can we do to help learners not deny their fears, but recognize their fears so that they can live with them? I think that we live in a world in which we tend to think that if we are fearful that success in the face of fear is to overcome that fear, and that leads a lot of us to deny the things that we're afraid of. I think a better approach is to simply face the fear and admit it, to confess to it and say, you know, that thing that we do, (laughs) I'm afraid of that thing. (laughs) I'm afraid of that. Every time we do that, I'm a little afraid. That simple confession gives us the opportunity, gives us a door, gives us a little cracked window, gives us a little entry point to talk about a small way to overcome it. Every time we give a person who is afraid the freedom to utter their fear, to confess to the fear, we give them an opportunity to start overcoming it. And every time we tell someone, we shame someone for being afraid, or every time we tell someone that they just need to get over it, we're inviting them instead to deny their fear and keep pushing it down, which means they will never, they won't, we're not helping them overcome it. And it means that whatever they are afraid of will become more and more of a burden and more and more of a feared thing because the learner has never learned to get past it. And so that choice is ours every day, whether we are the learner or whether we are the coach and guide for another learner. We can either help them deny and feel shame about the thing that they don't know and the fears they have about learning, or we can help create a safe place for confessing the fear so that we can start helping them do small incremental things to get past it and live fear-free. So today, today, it was going to be so easy, right? Let's just talk about why people are afraid of learning. Oh, man, not that easy. (laughs) Not that easy. I'm so happy that you joined us today to have this conversation and to share some ideas about learning 
and learners, ways that we can optimize those things and ways that we can be honest about the way that learning goes for us, for learners with whom we work. I know some days it can be difficult. I know some days can be frustrating and overwhelming. And some days you might think, oh, I just, I'm not sure about this whole thing. Why? Why did I start this whole thing? But you are right for this job. You chose to do this for a very specific set of reasons. Please keep those reasons in mind and know that someone out here believes in you. You can do it. Hang in there. Please drop me a note at any of the available channels. Please follow us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes. We're in all three places. So whatever you use to listen to podcasts, please follow us there. And we look forward to engaging with you. And until next Monday, keep learning. We'll see you then. At the process effect, we make it simpler to incorporate learning processes that have an amazing effect. Thank you for joining us.